That was awesome. Um, so we're uh, almost to the end of the book of Ruth. We're uh, to the second to last uh, section. And so um, we're going to read today from uh, Ruth chapter 4, verses 13 through 17. Uh, this text is printed in the bulletin and also uh, up on the screens behind me. Uh, this is God's word. We should hear it and respond to it as such this morning. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women told to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who has more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. So one of the things that's uh, profound about this story is it begins uh, uh, with uh, death and destruction, and it ends with uh, a joyful celebration and a joyful uh, uh, birth. And so so one of the things that uh, is true whenever we read a story like this is that we, we come at this, we see and we experience the pain, the suffering, the difficulty, the sadness, and then we end in a happy place. And for many of us, as we sit here today, uh, we're a long way off from the happy place. A long way off. Um, one of the things that uh, you may not realize, I mean, I, one of the what may be your one of your most favorite parts of the worship service is to see these children gather here to run to the front and then talk about the things that they talk about, stick their tongue out at you and all the things that they do and squirm and, <clears throat> um, uh, you know, experience. I'm sure they were paid off by their parents to say the team that they liked and oh, all of that sort of thing and to rush off to children's worship. And it may be to you. Uh, the most painful part of the service. Because you want a baby. You may uh, experience going to a wedding and or even being a, a bridesmaid or a groomsman. I have many times... Uh, done weddings where I looked at the beautiful bridesmaids and the groomsmen and saw a lot of sadness there. And it wasn't because they were sad that their friend was getting married. It was because they were sad that they weren't getting married. Um, so as you look at this and you, you think about this, you, un, you, you unpack this and you we have this mystery of the way in which God works in our lives and the way in which he provides and what he does and, and how he provides. We read a story like Ruth and uh, we come to the end of it and uh, we are not surprised really in many ways that this story ends uh, uh, with, a, with a happy uh, ending. And yet <clears throat> our temptation and our struggle in the midst of this is that, um, well, I'm, I'm still in the middle of my grief and my bitterness. After all, Naomi changed her name, didn't she, to bitter. So 
What can we say about this and what are we to think about this? Well, the the fact of the matter is one of the things that we do, and I think modern life does this to us in ways that that perhaps uh, uh, previous generations didn't experience this. We're inoculated, many of us, and and have been inoculated against uh, what happens to most people who live in the world in life. You know, one of uh, one of the things is we. Um, we expect people to live a long time. We expect medical science to come through, and we we expect there to be a lot of joy and a lot of success, right? And uh, that's kind of the way we approach life, when in fact, what the Scripture says to us, what the Gospel says to us, what the Bible tells us is that this world and that our lives are broken irreparably, uh, at least irreparably from our standpoint, uh, by sin and the things that really matter in life and the things that we really want in life and the, the, the desires that well up within us are for things that we ourselves can't provide. And so when you look at this and you look at this situation and when you, you see a, a story like this, you have to come to grips with that. And one of the things that we have to see about the story of the gospel, the work of Jesus Christ, the, the life he lived for us, the death he died for us, and, and the situation that we find ourselves in today is the reality that the world still is a broken place, that we still are broken people. And that the effects of the sin of, of our first parents, uh, though being pushed back, are still very much around and a part of the world in which we live. I, this quote I love from Marilyn Robinson, she says this, quoting the Bible, He will wipe the tears from all faces. And that's, that's where we're headed. But she very honestly and directly says this, It takes nothing from the loveliness of the verse to say that is exactly what will be required. Right? Because the, what's, what, why would that be required? Because we walk through this world. In fact, the scriptures describes it. Much, uh, much of life is the movement through what we might call the veil of tears, right? So, so the reality is, the, the fact is that the world, uh, is a difficult place. And our sin is a difficult thing. And our brokenness uh, our pridefulness, our independence, our willfulness, our bitterness are very difficult things. But the fact is, the, the truth of the matter is that what we see in this story as, as Naomi sits there with her, this child on her lap, as, as Ruth gets married to the wealthy man in town, uh, as the women gather and they sing their songs of triumph and grace and, and joy, uh, the fact of the matter is, for many of us, as we struggle with that, we think, well, I'm not there yet. So what do I do? So as we look at this text today and as we understand this, we're going to see the joy of redemption. We're going to see the grace that is powerfully in, in displayed here. And we're also going to see how this story of grace and redemption uh, of, of the Lord overcoming sadness and brokenness intersects uh, with our own lives. So. So the first thing to note about this is, is we think of Ruth as a love story, and it is. Last week, as I was leaving, some people asked me, uh, so does, do Boaz and Ruth love each other? How come we don't have a description of their first kiss? 
Or the first time he reached out to touch her hand or, or the, you know, what kind of gifts did he bring her and and what was she wearing to attract his attention and and, you know, on and on and on. Right. Because it's a love story and we're interested in that. That's that's what our culture is always thinking about. Right. We're always thinking about love stories. I remember a few years ago when uh, uh, the Tolkien uh, movies came out, you know, the. The thing in that, in that, the, the, if you, if you hadn't read the books, what you would think that the books were about was this love story between this really grubby guy who ends up being the hero and this elf. She's an elf. That's right. I always get confused. It's hard for me to think of Liv Tyler as an elf, you know, because she's so tall. And, uh, uh, I think of elves as short, but she's really tall, right? So, uh, but when I read the books, now this was a long time ago, and of course I'm a guy, so I'm not looking for romance in every kernel of every word of every page. As I was reading it, I thought, you know, thats I don't think that's what this the main part of this story is about. But hey, it's 2017. Where's the romance? Tell us about what was going on in that threshing floor. Let's hear about the kisses and the and the oohs and the ahs and and all of that kind of stuff. Well, the Bible's not super interested in that. Now, this story is a love story. There's no doubt about it, but it's not the kind of love story that would sell in 2017 because because the 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 real story is not just of the love between Ruth and Boaz. I believe they love each other. Uh, it's the story of love between a daughter-in-law and her mother-in-law. Really, that's that's what's going on here. I mean, who is it that at the uh, on the road says, "You know what? I'm, I make a commitment to you, mother-in-law, even though my husband's dead, your husband's dead, and we're returning to a place I've never been to before. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God." And not only that, not only does she make that commitment to her to go with her, and not only does she make a commitment to go with her and to be with her through life, she says, where you die, I'll die. So even after she makes the commitment that she's going to go to this place and she's going to be with Naomi till Naomi dies, but she's going to be in this place and she's going to have this God as her God and these people as her people even after Naomi dies. What a commitment. What a love story. Really, it's a profound thing. Uh, I'm always intrigued when uh, people choose um, that passage from Ruth saying, I'll go where you go, your people will be my people, your God will be my God, and where you die, I'll die and be buried in weddings. Because I'm waiting, you know, I'm like, all right, say that to your (laughs) mother-in-law. Nobody ever does that. (laughs) Right? But more than that. It is a love story between a God who seems, frankly, very quiet and absent and a broken, bitter woman. That's really the love story here, honestly. Because what we see here is is, is Naomi says it. She says that, that God's been against me, that he has embittered my soul, that I went away full when she goes there into to Moab, but he's brought me back empty. She's embittered, she's angry, she's depressed, and she blames God. Now, she knows that there is a God who is sovereign, who is in control, and that he has brought her to this place in her life, and and, and she recognizes that. And, and we read this story of what happens here, and yet we don't hear God speak, do we? He doesn't show up and say, 
hey, Naomi, it's going to be okay. He doesn't, he doesn't, we, we don't, we don't, it's, it's, it's as if he is invisibly at work in this story. Because remember, you know, we, he, how is he going to care for these widows? How is he going to provide for them? What is he going to do? What, what is their story going to be? And so as you look at this and you unpack this, that's, that's one of the things that, that we have to, that we have to see about this. And for most of the story, it seems like God's not doing much of anything at all. And yet, here we go, at the end, we see that God indeed did love Naomi, and he provided richly and profoundly for her. So, the other thing to notice about uh, this, at uh, the end of this uh, section of the book, is something that also seems a little odd and unusual to us. The book, after all, is titled Ruth, but it's not about Ruth. Who's it about? It's really about Naomi, isn't it? That's really what, what, the, what, the, what the story is about. And uh, it says that she went away full and came back empty, and now a son has been born to Naomi. Did you read that? Right? It just says, so Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. What a, what a pr- profound thing, right? So as you, as you read this, the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, his son has been born to Naomi. That's what really is happening here. So, so the whole point of this story is that, yes, she went away full, but she came back empty. And what, what happens here is, is that God has, has moved and has worked He's seen to it that, that Ruth would cling to her and love her, that Ruth would have the energy to get up on a morning and go to glean, and that God mysteriously and quietly and sovereignly led Ruth to the field of Boaz, right? She went away full and came back empty, and now a son has been born to Naomi. For your daughter-in-law who loves you is more to you than seven sons. Now, listen to that. You may miss what's going on in that statement. And frankly, if you listen very intently, it may offend you. What the women are saying there is even more profound about the gracious provision of God than you might know. Why would would they say, Ruth is better to you than seven sons? Why not say Ruth is better to you than a son or two sons, which she had? Why seven? Well, seven's the number of completion and perfection. Ruth is better to you. In a male-dominated culture, in a culture where it is essential to have sons to be able to be cared for and to have the inheritance and that sort of thing go on, the provision of God of this Moabite woman of this godless, idol-worshipping Moabite, at least at some point in time that's who she was, who married into your family, who you did not want to bring back with you, who you urged to stay in Moab, who who could have only been to you a a reminder of your pain, who could have only been to you a a reminder of your suffering, who, who would have felt to you like a liability, here at the end of the story is better to you, better for you, then if you'd had seven sons, a complete family, 
And so we hear that, we read that, and we think, how can that be? Now, does this mean that, that Naomi is never going to grieve the loss of her husband or her two boys? No, it doesn't mean that at all. But what it does tell us is, is that where God takes her and the way in which he provides for her is unexpected and beautiful and wonderful because the place she least expected to see God provide, he provided. And it is, ba- it is, it is wonderful and it is better than she could have imagined. It is better than she could have thought of. It is better than she could have provided for herself. And so here she is in this situation where this woman uh, who was who changes her name from sweetness to bitterness. There she is. She's in a situation that the women say is better for her than if she'd had seven sons. We read here this woman who she says, and the writer tells us in chapter 1, verse 5, who was left without her boys, now takes the boy upon her lap. Right? So what you have to see here is the love from Ruth that was rejected, don't stay with me, get away from me, don't come back with me, has become the saving grace. Because what we read here is that by the fact that Ruth has had this child, that he will be a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. Now, one of the things that I think about this, and given uh, where we are as a congregation and with the way we think about kids, is uh, how can we be sure that Obed will serve um, his, next slide please, AJ, his grandmother? Because after all, uh, kids often do not fulfill what we might desire for them, Right? We, we raise these children and we have this idea of what they're going to be, you know, when they're little and, and they're on the, the, the uh, honor roll at school and we put that bumper sticker on our car and, and we put up those wonderful videos on uh, social media of their achievements. We think it's a straight line to success. And yet, sometimes it's not. So how can we be sure that this child is going to be this way? Well, the, t- the answer to that's in the text itself. Because one thing we know about Obed, Obed's going to love Naomi because his mother loves Naomi. Uh, her love uh, for Naomi will be bequeathed to Obed. And I want to take a second here just to point something out to you about this. Because you, we're, we're reading this and we're thinking about this as Naomi having a grandson. But is he really? He's not. He's not her grandson. Right? He is, at best, a the son of a distant relative and her former daughter-in-law who is better to her than seven sons. Now, how does this work? Jesus said that he would give to his people who left lands and homes and families and mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters Hundreds more. Hundreds more. 
Look around the room. Look around the room. That's who you are. When, uh, when we moved to Richmond years ago and uh, we struggled to have children and then we lost a child uh, and our family came and grieved with us and then they left as they had to do. My dad looked at us and said, you'll be okay because people there love you. When we had children, our uh, parents live uh, 300 plus miles away and uh, we were concerned about them knowing and being known by their grandparents and that is a rich and important thing. But again, my dad said, you know what? They've got a couple of dozen grandparents who love them and care for them. So as, as you think about this, and as, as we unpack this, this is in no way devalues blood family relationships, but it certainly does magnify before us the magnificent work that Christ does in drawing a community of people together and using them to supply the needs uh, that we have, right? So, so when we think about this, then how does this apply to us? You know, the Naomi's. Well, one of the things that you have to see is that the overwhelming teaching of the Bible is that the Lord is particularly mindful of the brokenhearted. In fact, uh, Psalm 34, 18 says, uh, go ahead, AJ. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. One of the things that you have to see uh, about this is uh, how uh, different this is from us. One of the things that if you read the Gospels in a certain way, what do you notice about Jesus Christ? When Jesus walks the earth, who does he notice? Who does he see? Who does he hear? He welcomes children into his lap and holds them and blesses them, even as his disciples say, they're a bother, get rid of them. We see Jesus walking the streets and being touched by and touching lepers and sick people and people who are outcasts and and unclean and, and, and the neediest among them. We see him consistently speaking words of grace to widows. And we see him walking down the road and seeing a funeral procession and seeing a widow and he has compassion upon her. The preponderance of the New Testament. You can't, you cannot read the New Testament without coming into contact with the, the, the work of the Lord, particularly for the weak and the infirm, the unnoticed and the forgotten. He's about that all the time. And so one of the things that you have to see about that is how that is so alien to us. This week, Marty and I were talking about a conversation she had with a mom, and, and this, this happens to us at a very early age. It happens to all of us where, frankly, we are not attracted to the same things that the Lord is attracted to. We are not attracted to the forgotten, the invisible, the broken, and the sad. We are attracted to the cool, the fun, 
the impressive. And it, it happens at a very early age. Uh, she was talking to a mom of a very young child who was talking about the kids uh, in her class. And she began to describe the kids in her class as the big kids, the medium kids, and the little kids. Now, you think that's size. And that's what mom thought at first until she began to ask her questions. And no, the big kids are the impressive kids, the popular ones, the cool ones. Now, these these are little children. The medium ones are the ones that are just kind of along for the ride. And the little ones are the ones that nobody notices. So the mom, being the kind of mom that we all know, asked her daughter, well, where are you? What kind are you? She said, I'm a, a medium child. I'm in, the me- I'm in the middle. So what's that mom's response to that? <laughs> this is my favorite part of the story. Tell me the names again of the big kids, and we'll have them over this week. That way we can help move you into the group with the big kids. (laughs) Well, that is so awesome. You know, you know, even if I made that up, it would still be true. (laughs) Because that's exactly, that's exactly the way it works, isn't it? Right? Who gets noticed? Who gets noticed? We can see that uh, God notices and is aware of those that we forget. Yes, he sees and he cares for the widow, the orphan. He sees and he cares for the sad and the broken. He sees and cares for the stranger, the alien, the immigrant, and the refugee. And I hesitate to say that because it's such a loaded political term. But he also sees the weakest and the least of these, even the unborn. But more than that, he sees those that we often forget most quickly. He sees and remembers the dead. Now you hear that and you think, oh, how can that be? We don't forget the dead. Go to Hollywood Cemetery and look at all the graves where there's no name left on them because time and weather has washed them away. When my, um, when my mom died, uh, my dad was very set on getting a marker put up for her in her grave. And there was a paperwork error, and it was delayed. And so the week before Thanksgiving, before we all gathered with him, he called the cemetery and said, I just wanted to tell you all, they didn't have the marker up, that my family's coming into town uh, for Thanksgiving. And I just wanted you to know that there will be a marker at my wife's grave. Either you're going to do it, or I'm going to do it. (laughs) Yeah, Uh, they got one up. 
right? And I told my dad, I'm like, you know, dad, that's awesome. I'm, I'm glad that that's true. I said, but you know, Jesus knows where mom is and knows her and has not forgotten her and he will not forget her. And he's going to bring her out of that grave, whether her name's on it or not, because his name is on her. So in the press of life and in the, the things that happen to us, you know, we may, we may think that somehow or other we are identifying ourselves with these people or the, the forgotten ones or whatever. But the, good, the great news about this is, while this should challenge us, is Jesus sees the brokenhearted. He sees the weak. He sees those that have been most affected by sin and the curse and the fall and he draws close to them and he touches them and he becomes one of them and overcomes that on their behalf. And so as we think about this, as we look about this, we can we can say that this story reminds us and shows us that even the bitter, the people that we don't want to be around, the, the negative people, the, the people that bring us down. And let me tell you what, Naomi brings you down. The Lord sees her and he is at work. To redeem her. Secondly, uh, the blessing and restoration that God brings is not perhaps what we want and may not be what we expect. One of the things that we have to see about this is, is that, that God's at work in redeeming this, 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 this widow and caring for her and providing for her. But he's doing it precisely in a way that we would never expect. He is doing it through a Moabite girl. He is doing it through another Moabite widow. He is doing it in a way that we would never expect. And in fact, he is doing it through a Moabite widow who up until this point in time has been barren. You see, what we, what we need to understand about this is, is that the things that are true of us, the things that we struggle with, the things that are so hard for us, the Lord is at work in redeeming and changing and restoring and renewing us. And it may be at work in our lives and we may simply be blind to it. Cause remember, Naomi goes back to, <laughs> goes back to Bethlehem and says, I went away full and the Lord's brought me back empty. While the, the vessel through which he will redeem her is standing right there next to her on the road. I'm empty. No, you're not. You have a woman who loves you and is better to you than seven sons. And so the, 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 the reality is, let me, I, I want to urge you to understand and have your eyes open to the reality that God redeems. That Jesus came as a redeemer and that he provides that redemption. It may not come the way we expect. It may not come in the way even that we think we desire. But it does not matter. His character, his heart, and his activity is that of a redeemer. Open your eyes. Ask God to open your eyes to see how it is he may be redeeming you. Thirdly, we wait. And this, this might be the most difficult thing about this. When, when we read this text and we come at this place and we, um, uh, we think, wow, you know, it ends in a happy, a happy story and that sort of thing. But there's a lot of waiting, a lot of traveling, and a lot of time. This story compacts things down to just what seems like happens over a short period of time. But this, you know, it, it takes a while to get married and have a baby. 
It, it, we, this story, as we've read it here, uh, covers years. And so as we, as we read this and as we think about this and as we unpack this, one of the things that we have to see about this is that so much of our lives are spent in waiting, crying out, seeking, desiring for the Lord to move and to show himself in a particular way in our lives. Now, the, the, AJ, uh, one of the things that we have to see about this is, is that human brokenness can only be redeemed by the Lord. And in fact, the things we want most in life come only from him. Now, we spend an awful lot of our time and energy about these little things, uh, small things that we think are the things that, that matter most. When in fact, what the Lord is about is redeeming us for the big things, right? So we spend a lot of our time on things that are small, but the Lord is moving in our lives with the things that really matter. So not only, not only is, is God at work here in Naomi's life and in Ruth's life to, to provide Boaz and then to provide Obed and that sort of thing, he's doing even bigger things in that he is providing through them and, and through this, this, this family a savior. A savior who will save his people from their sins. A savior who will save uh, his people, not just from their sins, but from the effect of their sins. A savior who will die for them and taste and experience the fullness of their sinfulness and rebellion so that they are renewed and restored, forgiven and given new life. So I just want to say something about this phrase right here at the end. You know, the best is yet to come. We use it a lot. I know a lot of you really like this uh, phrase, and it is a great phrase. The best is yet to come. We like it. Uh, I find it to be a little glib. And I please understand, I'm not criticizing you because I've read a lot of Facebook posts and all that about this, and I think... I think it is. It's absolutely true. The best is yet to come. But I want you to understand something about this. And it's this, that for the vast majority of us, the best is yet to come. Yes. But for us to get it, we're going to have to die. And so one of the things that, that, that we have to, to see about this and one of the heart cries that, that I want you and I to uh, take fully to heart is that when you read at the end of the Bible the cry of the church of Jesus Christ, what is it? What is it? Is it, Lord... You know, may all your people have good bonuses this year. Lord, may, may all your people uh, feel like they're not the little kids or the medium-sized kids, but that they're the big kids, right? No, the cry of the church is come, Lord Jesus. Come, bring your kingdom. Bring it in its fullness. Bring it in its glory, bring it in its joy, 
and wipe the tears from our eyes once and for all. The thing that we long for is not just a husband or a wife or a child or a grandchild or security or safety. The thing that we long for is only what Jesus can bring because the thing that we long for is Jesus himself. Come, Lord Jesus. Bring to full fruition what you've done for us. Let's pray. Lord, um, help us today to uh, see uh, you, to trust you, to cry out in our bitterness and in our darkness uh, for the fullness of what you lived and died uh, to give us to come to fruition. I pray that you would bless us with uh, a sense of your grace and your presence in our lives, even when it's hard for us to see it or to hear it or to feel it. Lord, I thank you for uh, the brothers and sisters, the moms and dads, the cousins, the aunts, the uncles, the grandmas and grandpas that you have given me through your people over the years. And what a great gift and joy they are. Lord, I pray for the Naomi's amongst us today who feel like you have uh, taken us away full and brought us back empty. I pray for the broken, for the sad, for the uncertain, for the afraid. I pray for those of us who have lived long lives of darkness and struggle that no one has seemed to notice. That Jesus, we would take heart that you see us. You remember us, and you will always remember us and bring us into your kingdom once and for all. Lord, I, I pray today for those of us who struggle daily, even minute by minute, with unfulfilled desires, now that you would give us the gift of patience, and that you would give us pointers, reminders, your redemption of the fact that you ultimately have a destiny for your people that is wonderful and good. And I pray that you would bring uh, uh, into our lives, open our eyes to the roots that may be in and around us, the people we least expect to be messengers of your grace and messengers of your provision to us. And so help us today, we pray, to trust you, to cry out to you, to have your eyes and your heart, and to be moved uh, uh, by the compassion and the redeeming love that you show broken, bitter people like us. Lord, we ask these things in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. As the guys come up to take up.